I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no cola, no lemon-lime. This is purely a ginger ale operation, and this is also Encounter 60, Orfeo Angelucci's electric ginger ale tablet test. This... This is the show I've been avoiding for almost two years. Every time I did a Contact the episode, there would be an email, a tweet, a comment. You should cover Orfeo Angelucci. Yes, I know. He was hugely interesting. Had encounter stories that were like kings and bathrooms, just different enough from the stereotype to be worth spending time on. Radio host Long John Nebel loved him, and even people who didn't believe him would say that you couldn't help but like the guy. It's such an obvious choice for this show that I had trouble figuring out what was keeping me from diving in. Then I reread his books. They're dense, and there's a lot going on, and that's great. It really is, but it makes writing the show more difficult. But hey, it's what we do here, so I got going. And one after another, weird things popped up that sent me to old magazines or to books that I had no idea would be relevant, to websites with weird theories about the entire nature of the contactee phenomenon, to FBI files, pre-book iterations of the story that needed to be reconciled with later accounts, all kinds of stuff. There may be more cul-de-sacs in this episode than any we've ever done, because Angelucci's story touches on a lot of other things that help give us a fuller picture. We'll have to dive into the questions of exactly what parts of his story appeared when and how and why, questions of authors and narrators, the importance of editors, and more. The biggest challenge with this episode was organization and structure. As I've said in some other episodes, if it's confusing, please know that I tried to make it clear. So when there's some topic, item, person, whatever, that represents some sort of rabbit hole, you'll hear this. It's a little bit of audio footnoting and signposting for you and for me. Now, for those of you I haven't frightened away, let's have some fun. Now, The way we're going to do this is to try and cover Orfeo Angelucci's story in the order the saucer-going public would have seen it unfold. That means we're not starting with born in blah 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 for this one because, and I hope you believe me when I say this, it's the way that makes the most sense. So possibly the earliest record we have of Angelucci begins in the late 40s when he undertook what I, I guess we can call a correspondence with noted biochemist and Nobel laureate Linus Pauling. Pauling's papers are meticulously organized and cataloged, and thanks to the Oregon State University Library, we have some idea of the letters Angelucci sent to Pauling. Some of them ask for information on specific chemical compounds. One, my my favorite mention in this catalog from 1960, asked Pauling to comment on Angelucci's essay on the fundamental nature of things. Pauling wrote back to say that he was busy in all of these cases. But Angelucci long had an interest in science and wrote an article titled The Nature of Infinite Entities in the 1940s. That'll come up again. 
But we're interested in flying saucers, and that's where it gets a little tricky. Angelucci's initial claim was that he had had his first encounter in 1952, obviously months before George Adamski did, because of course everyone has to be first. Before that account appeared in print, however, he attended a number of meetings and lectures where he talked about his experiences in flying saucers in general. This was largely done through his connection to Max B. Miller. Okay, who's Max B. Miller? Miller was the leader of Flying Saucers International, which had established Saucers, a UFO zine edited by Miller that ran from 1953 to 1960. It was in Saucers that some significant contactees got their start, including Truman Bethram. In Jim Mosley's memoir, Shockingly Close to the Truth, he discusses meeting Miller while on his trip across the U.S. interviewing saucer researchers and noted that Miller was someone who could get along with contactees while at the same time be completely comfortable denouncing hoaxes and mixing with the more scientific UFO types. He established the Amalgamated Flying Saucer Clubs of America, which for all the world sounds like some sort of UFO investigator union or something, and promoted the first flying saucer convention. He would also serve as a photographic advisor to NICAP. Miller's newsletter, or zine, Saucers, published Angelucci's earliest writing, including this in their first issue from 1953. It's entitled, The Broad Way, parenthesis, Flying Saucers I Like. The flying saucers that have most captured my interest, and which I look upon as the long-term substantial ones, are these those which appeared to Kenneth Arnold and continued on to confirm his report, the one which tangled with the late Captain Thomas Mantell, and the illustrated one of the Sunny Desvergers report. I like the eight which shot toward and then away from the two first officers of a Pan-American airliner in the southeastern state. Also, there are the many that radar finally was permitted to register at the same time planes were in their pursuit. We have heard enough of these to dispel any doubts. We all like flying saucers, in fact, especially the ones that have brought thousands of thinkers to some peculiar realization of what is occurring. Yes, our visitors are preparing us for the big day. I have seen enough of them to be convinced beyond any shadow of doubt. May I, and you, and you, see many, many more. I like those too. I had said that Miller had launched the first flying saucer convention. This occurred on August 16th through 18th, 1953, and had a huge assortment of speakers from the scientific to the wildest contactee stuff you can imagine. Well, you, you don't have to imagine it, you know, because you've listened to this show. One of my favorite things about this convention was that the MC was the amazing Criswell of Criswell Predicts. I like that for a couple of reasons. First, because I think it's a great promotional move. Criswell and his syndicated radio predictions were very popular. Second, because I love Plan 9 from Outer Space. And even if you don't think you've heard Criswell, you probably have. Can your heart stand the shocking facts about grave robbers from outer space? Settle down, Criswell. So, Angelucci was one of the speakers at this convention, along with a number of other contactees, but his story had not really appeared in print widely yet. He had published, in February of 1953, an account as part of a publication he called The 20th Century Times. In this account, 
Angelucci writes in the third person, which is a little unusual for contactees. There's a link in the show notes to the text, and huge thanks to someone named Mark Russell Bell, who posted it on his blog back in 2012. It's worth looking at, mostly for points of comparison to future versions of the story, for in Angelucci's work, we run into a situation that is common for those of us who study contact details. Which version is real? And by real, I don't mean real. By real, I mean the closest to what they want to present as their actual experience. What, to borrow a term from comic book fandom, is canon? And not just comic book fandom, science fiction TV fandom. A, a great example of this, if you're familiar with it, is the Star Trek episode City on the Edge of Forever by the, the fabulously grumpy writer Harlan Ellison. Ellison's original story was, was significantly different in a lot of details to what appeared on the screen, and he wasn't happy with the changes. And he's written extensively about how he wasn't happy with the changes. And original versions of the script appeared, and very recently, a graphic novel based on the original Harlan Ellison script for the episode appeared. Now, Ellison is the author, and this was his original vision for it, but it's not what appeared on screen. So which is the real sequence of events which happened? Well, canon states, canon principles of canon states, that whatever was broadcast on screen is canon. But there's a lot of arguments about that. And this is a, a segment that will probably be cut from the final episode for time, but I just wanted to talk about Harlan Ellison and City on the Edge of Forever because I'm a complete dork. Hey, at least I chose something that most people have heard of. I could have talked about some weird episode of Doctor Who from 1963 or something that none of you would comprehend. So, what's canon? The nice thing about Angelucci's stories is that while they differ from each other, at some point, every significant theme is included somewhere in some version. So, it's 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 interesting, but um, let's take a look at his earliest uh, his earliest attempt to get this experience down on paper. Friday, May twenty third, nineteen fifty two. This night, at eleven o'clock, he felt strangely ill. Symptoms struck him which were not familiar ones. Between the shoulders, persistent prickly tension, as of electrical currents leaking out from the spine, the knob located there into the system. The right arm and hand felt it acutely. The chest seemed to well up in a hot sensation. The heart palpitated, and he was barely at the edge of pain. The back of the neck and the head became tense. The blessed whistle finally droned, and they were done for the night. He must hurry home. Also, it now seemed that his ears had become numbed, and traffic was a muffled half-reel rhythm of autos. Directly ahead, and a little higher than the car, a deep red, very faint oval object came into view. It was nearly a circle. The length was about five times the diameter of the traffic light. It held his attention, and momentarily, all symptoms were forgotten. The red light keeps pace with him, then stops. At once, the red object eased off and away, descending some, then ascending and accelerating away. It went as a meteor, but disappeared in the sky without leaving even a spark. Instantly, something else took the place where it had just hurtled from. Two efflorescent green discs, about thirty inches apart, and each about thirty inches in diameter were there, shimmering, like two bubbles suspended perfectly in air. They appeared to be in a state of extreme agitation. 
Hardly two seconds had elapsed from the moment the burgundy color object abruptly disappeared. A most delightful masculine voice suggested, Come out here. Orfeo stepped out from the right side door. Orfeo, beloved friend, greetings. Greetings? Do you remember us? Yeah, yes, I, I, I mean, yes, indeed. You are balloons in New Jersey, beloved friend. Yes, I, I saw your plane go with them. They saw, but saw not. The world sees, but sees not. This you know, Orfeo. You are thirsty. Ever so thirsty. A bottle of drink for you. On the fender of the car, Orfeo took up a bottle, drinking all the most satisfying nectar he had ever tasted, and thereby all symptoms and thirst vanished at once. The voice then continued. Do you long to see Orion and Lyra? Yeah, yes. Oh, yeah, oh yes. The space between the two circles gradually became visible, as of indirect lighting, and much as a television screen. Two images emerged from shoulders up. It is difficult to say what color hair or eyes or any such details existed. It seemed that all hues and colors were blended in one superb end. Here, indeed, was a man and a woman near a possible ultimate of perfection. They faded away, and there was a feeling that he and his whole environs were being swept with them, for he had lost contact even with the two circles on each side of that screen. But there they were, with an emptiness again between them. He was now alone, with the overhead concrete bridge ahead. Just a note, that was not a flub. The word really was efflorescent, not fluorescent. Anyway, the saucers leave, and he goes back home. And the next day, Orfeo goes back to where he first encountered the saucers, but finds nothing. Later, he would have another encounter. It was July 23rd, 1952, and he had been at the drive-in theater he and his wife helped to operate. He left and was walking alone in the darkness. There seemed to be a hazy, misty obstruction between him and the arch of the bridge just ahead. It was barely visible. It was like a reproduction of a ghostly Eskimo igloo, but so transparent it hardly seemed real, like a half-bubble of soap with the bottom curving outward, much like a turtle. Almost at once, a section seemed to become dark and spread out as an inverted cone. The interior, now translucent and more real, was revealed. As if in a trance, Orfeo walked to the aperture, hesitated a split second, and knew there was no alternative but to enter. There was no sign of life, nor sound. A pearly comfort chair on the far side cozily suggested he sit here, come home. It was a pearly interior, all pearl, shimmering, and tending to recede from view constantly, this dome-like, utterly empty room. He sat down, feeling very secure and comfortable as though he had done this before. But what would happen now? A low, vibrant hum, more felt than heard, took on a crescendo, and he felt gently pushed against the comfortable chair, pushed by every inch of his body as though his body were pushing backward beyond any control on his part. Reason began to take form, and a grip of fear was beginning to overpower him when an orchestration of one of his favorite songs gradually arose. It was Fools Rush In, Where Angels Fear to Tread. The strains had an orienting effect on Orfeo, for it lent a thread of association. The musical rendition neared its end. What then? Was he to spend an eternity in this pearly igloo? The body now seemed to gradually relax its backward push against the seat, until it ceased. A new opening appears, and he sees Earth, from space. The voices of the space people return, and as Angelucci considers why he was chosen, this exchange takes place. 
Brother of a man, ask no longer why we have chosen you. Each is divinely created, but a child shall lead, and the meek are strong. Dirt is clean, and sickness as but a gem. Atheism is a frigid end, hypocrisy an unseen venom. All is one, bad, good, evil, holy, past, future. You're on one side or the other, always. We know where you stand. Why, beloved friend, are you apathetic and inactive? You, a chosen one. Who is so mildly cosmic? You, so expendable. Is your life a flash away as nothing? No, please, please, no. I am not such a one who cares not. My very life is yours. I beg to see you, Neptune, or Orion. Give me health, and there is nothing I cannot accomplish for you. Do this. Let me feel forever as I feel now. Ask the Almighty this in my behalf. The kind of... I don't, I don't want to call it fakey philosophy, but the sort of high-minded but kind of hollowish philosophical stuff there at the beginning from the Space Brother is something we're going to see in the future with Orfeo, but uh, not immediately in the future, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about. Also, I am not such a one who cares not was possibly one of the top three sentences I had to try to say more than Oh, a half dozen times to actually get right. So there are some also some indications here that there's some kind of previous connection between Orfeo and these beings, and also his health issues that he talks about in, in various places having had for a very long time. They, they make an appearance, but he doesn't really talk about his medical background in this initial document. We get that later. So anybody who read, and I think there must have been upwards of four people who read this initial story in the 20th Century Times, might have been a little confused. So these health issues appear. He wants to be uh, he wants to be healed, and and he will be. They they sort of tell him that, and he returns to Earth, sort of having been renewed with a a renewed being. A large aperture closed rapidly. Again, his body seemed to push delightfully against the back of the seat, and the strains of the Lord's Prayer as we know it filled the dome. In this magnificent setting, Orfeo felt as a worm of a human being, dirty, unkempt, and sinful in the fullest sense. The strains of the Lord's Prayer seemed to wash away those unhappy reflections of the conscience as rapidly as they arose. Through the strains, the voice spoke. And forgive us our Beloved friend, we, we baptize you by all the spectral forces we know. A white beam evil. flashed through the pearly wall our of the dome craft and heaven. seared Orfeo just above the stomach and below the left come, breast. Will be done. There was a flashing pain. The push of his body against the back of the bread. seat also eased. Again, there was a turning, apparently back to the original position, then quiet and still, but for the soft vibration of the floor. The wall again opened in the same inverted cone shape. There were the environs of the theater grounds as though he had never moved from the position when the craft had left. Good night. Only one issue of the 20th Century Times ever appeared. What distribution it had was probably limited to what he could sell at flying saucer meetings at the Hollywood Hotel. But wider promotion for his story would come with the publication of the November 1953 issue of Mystic Magazine. In fact, it was the very first issue of Mystic Magazine. Okay, Mystic Magazine. This was the brainchild of Ray Palmer, who we met in Encounter 406, where we discussed Richard Shaver. 
Palmer had established the Venerable Fate magazine in 1948, along with Curtis Fuller, but by the early 1950s, relations between Palmer and Fuller were becoming strained editorially. Not really personally, but editorially. Mostly, uh, well, partially, at least partially, it's unclear, because of Fuller's much more restrained conservative approach to the UFO mystery, as opposed to Palmer's broader approach, which included publicizing the stories of various contactees. In 1953 or 1955, depending on the story you believe, I'm going with one of the very well-done biographies of Palmer and saying 1953. The 1955 date comes from Wikipedia, so take your pick. Whichever year it was, Palmer sold his shares of fate to the Fuller family and started a competitor, Mystic Magazine. In the first issue, he published I Traveled in a Flying Saucer by Orfeo Matthew Angelucci, as told to Paul M. Vest. The article starts off with an editorial statement that not only introduces Angelucci to the audience, but says some interesting and very true things about the state of the saucer field at the time, and in a way, is illustrative of the split between someone like Palmer with his ideas about what deserved to be published and um, and those of, of Fuller, who had different ideas. The general public has been divided into two groups. The group which scoffs at the existence of the mysterious disks and the group that believes they exist. Of the latter group, there are again two divisions. Those who believe they are interplanetary and those who believe there is a mystic explanation. Mr. Angelucci is one who says they fall into both classifications. That is, they are from space, from other worlds, and that they are also of a mystic nature. The whole they fall into both categories thing could be, um, and sort of taken at face value, an interesting approach to the UFO mystery at the time, or being a little more cynical, and with someone like Ray Palmer, um, you always have to sort of look at it through the the vision of a uh, an accomplished editor who was really good at selling a whole lot of stories to a lot of people as a way to broaden the story its appeal. This isn't a nuts and bolts thing. It's not a mystic thing. It's it's a both thing, which is which is pretty impressive. So Angelucci begins in this account by explaining that he had no real interest in the topic of UFOs, but a strong interest in science in which he was largely self-taught after leaving school at a young age due to poor health. He mentions his family, a wife and two sons, as well as his job with Lockheed Aircraft working in the plastics department, a detail not present in his original telling. He continues this preface by hoping we believe him despite his humble status, and his humble status is a theme that he would return to several times. He's fearful of ridicule and acknowledges that scientists will say what he experienced is impossible. However, he argues, things we take for granted would have been dismissed by the greatest minds of ancient times as being impossible. On to the encounter itself. It is, once again, May 23, 1952. As before, there's a red object that he follows on his drive, two green discs, and a voice. Don't be afraid, Orfeo. We are friends. So far, so familiar, although the voice is a little less sort of personable and friendly, despite saying we are friends. There's none of the, hey, Orfeo, buddy, remember us? sort of thing you see in the initial count. 
He sees the same sort of screen projected between the two discs and the faces as before, and asks why they have contacted, quote, just an aircraft factory worker, a nobody. We see the individual people of Earth as each one really is, Orfeo, and not as perceived by the limited senses of man. The people of your planet have been under observation by us for centuries, but have only recently been resurveyed. Every point of progress in your society is registered with us. We know you as you do not know yourselves. Every man, woman, and child on Earth is recorded in our vital statistics by means of our recording crystal discs. From among you, we singled out three individuals who, from the standpoint of our higher vibrational perception, are best fitted for establishing contact. All three are simple, humble, and unknown persons. Of the other two, one is living in Rome, and the other is in India. But for our first contact with the people of Earth, Orfeo, we have chosen you. We feel a deep sense of kinship or brotherhood toward Earth's inhabitants because of the evolution of our planet has been along somewhat the same lines as that of Earth. In you, we can look back and see our own world going through its growing pains. We ask that you look upon us as an older, much older brother. The voice then goes on to talk about the motives of the visitors and their mysterious flyovers. They basically want to give people on Earth a chance to get used to them gradually, and of the uh, sort of motive power of the saucers themselves. They tap into, wait for it, universal magnetic forces. Angelucci asks about the case of Thomas Mantell, who was killed when his plane crashed chasing a UFO and Sonny Disvergers, a scoutmaster who was burned during an encounter. Both of these are cases he mentioned in his first article for Max Miller's magazine, you'll recall. Basically, the response is that these, these people held negative emotions in their minds, either anger or fear, and the visitors responded accordingly to those, those feelings that were in the human's mind. As to the perennial question of why they don't just land in a public place and say, take me to your leader or something like that, the voice had this to say. Cosmic law actively prevents one planet from interfering with the evolution of any other planet. In other words, Orfeo, Earth must work out its own destiny. We will do everything in our power to aid the people of Earth, but we are definitely and greatly limited by cosmic law. It is because the life evolution of Earth is endangered now that we have made our reappearance here in your solar system. The danger is far greater than Earth people realize. The enemy prepares in vast numbers and in secret. Once the reign of fire is unleashed upon Earth, we will be powerless, and civilization as you know it may perish, as it did once in the remote past. There really isn't any follow-up on this enemy, but the voice does trot out the old cliché of Earth being the cosmic kindergarten, with other civilizations being much more advanced. They promise to visit again, and Angelucci continues home, where his wife is concerned about his sickly appearance and wonders what happened to him. Days later, he's finally able to tell her, and of course, she believes him and she's very supportive. He goes on with his life, always wondering when he'll be contacted again. Now, this initial encounter as presented here is different from how it was presented in, in earlier 1953. Here, there's no hint that Angelucci had previous connections to the beings. Uh, we don't see any discussion of current saucer stories in that earlier account, but we do here, or explanation as, as to what the visitors are doing in the previous account. But 
we do here. In this telling, as in the first, the second contact happens on July 23, 1952. Angelucci was taking a walk at 10 p.m., and he had been feeling poorly the whole day. As he walks toward the shadows of the Hyperion Avenue freeway bridge, he sees something. It's the same igloo-shaped saucer as in the first telling, but the details and some of the conversations are different. The purpose of this journey that he's on, according to the visitors, was to give Angelucci perspectives on humanity's place in the cosmos and to have him encourage humanity to develop deeper understanding and avoid destructive conflict. There's no baptism or booming sound of the Lord's Prayer, no recognition of previous encounters, no names of space people given. Angelucci closes by saying that the enemy cannot be revealed, and that he was interviewed and cross-examined by the government about the information he gave them about the flying saucers. So, there are some distinct differences between the earliest account Angelucci wrote and what appeared in Mystic, and also some differences between both of those and the very sort of economical writing style we saw in his articles in Saucers magazine. In Paul Natus's excellent biography of Ray Palmer, uh, called The Man from Mars, he reports Angelucci admitting that his writing was, quote, rambling and only partially coherent. So we probably see some efforts in here from editor Ray Palmer and also Paul M. Vest. Angelucci would publish more stories about his encounters in the pages of Mystic Magazine, always aided by Paul M. Vest, that writer from L.A. Oh yeah, Paul M. Vest. Vest wrote a number of articles in the 1940s and 50s about various esoteric topics, usually in the realm of theosophy and other spiritualist subjects for Fate and Mystic and other magazines. I'm not sure if it's a pen name, and I've not been able to reliably track down any biographical information about him. And I'm not the only one, as you'll hear in a second. So, in August 1954, after Angelucci's stories had appeared in Mystic, Vest penned an article himself, Venusians Walk Our Streets! Exclamation point. It adds a bit of a wrinkle to the Angelucci saga, but mostly gives us a glimpse into the promotional mind of Ray Palmer. Like Angelucci's first article in Mystic, it begins with a message from the editor. This story is labeled on our contents page as true. The editors believe what Mr. Vest tells in it and we wish to point out that Mr. Vest himself believes it. What we want to caution you, however, is that sometimes everything is not exactly what it seems to be. If Venusians actually are walking our city streets, Mystic intends to do its level best to prove it. Thus, we ask that anyone who can add to Mr. Vest's story come forward now with any evidence they may possess. It may be extremely important. The identity of the Flying Saucer Men may be absolutely vital to our national security. Vest begins by explaining that what he is going to say sounds bizarre, but that beings from another world are walking our streets. It began eight months ago when a strange man calling himself Bill wanted to visit Vest. A time was arranged, and at the meeting place, Bill seemed to appear out of nowhere. Now, Bill was odd right from the start. We shook hands, and I recall being aware of the peculiar feel of his hand, as though it were without any underlying bone structure. And listen to this description. He was about six feet tall, or slightly over, and appeared to be about 28 years old. His eyes were dark, almost black, and his hair black and wavy. He was dressed in ill-fitting sport clothes, in which he didn't seem to be very comfortable. A casual observer would certainly not be startled by his appearance. In a crowd, he would pass as a rather unusual-appearing person. But 
As I studied him more closely while he talked, I was aware of certain strange characteristics in his physical appearance. His skin was exceptionally white, so white, in fact, that it appeared to have an odd bluish tinge. His cheekbones were unusually high, and his eyes and brows had a peculiar oriental cast, yet in no way did he resemble a true oriental. And I noticed that his ears were oddly pointed, and appeared to be more delicate and complex than any I had ever seen. Folks, this sounds like a man in black, or at least a template for what would come down the road a bit. But as odd as Bill is, he's got a reason for visiting Vest. But my strange visitor had me deeply puzzled from the moment I first met him. He was like no person I had ever encountered before. Perhaps ESP entered into my awareness of his strange psychic and spiritual qualities. In his presence, I was immediately acutely conscious of a completely foreign and heretofore unknown vibration. I didn't know who he was, but I did know my visitor was no ordinary man. We had been more or less making conversation on subjects of general interest up to this point when he turned to me abruptly and asked, Did you ever hear of Orfeo Angelucci? Bill urges Vest to reach out to Angelucci as he is one of the people the Venusians have been contacting. Bill emphasizes that Orfeo is the first to take a trip into outer space, but he's not the only one who's been contacted. He said numerous Venusian contacts have been made with Earthlings by means of ham radio sets and tape recordings. He furnished names and addresses. The story drifts off into some typical contactee language around this time, but this is tinged with the spiritualism that was Vest's usual area of interest, at least before Bill the Venusian put him on the Angelucci beat. The beings of certain other worlds view Earth as Earthlings might look upon a den of deadly serpents stinging each other to death. Much of that stinging is done with words, attitudes, discriminations, intolerances, and a host of other lethal psychic weapons. Mankind's greatest teacher, the etheric sun spirit, whom you know as Jesus Christ, who took upon himself the error of humanity to teach men simply to love one another, was crucified and tortured by those he came to save. And yet, today, men self-righteously demand that etherics land their craft openly at one of your airports. But like children, you are learning, slowly and painfully. Eventually, all will attain their lost heritage. In the meantime... We will help insofar as we are permitted to do so. Vest finds out that Bill is not just an alien, but an intermediary for those who exist on a higher level, presumably the beings that Angelucci has been talking to. The terminology between space people and Venusians and and higher beings gets a little muddled throughout all this. And Bill has probably been talking to others, including an L.A. reporter identified as Max Morton, A being matching Bill's description and identifying himself as a Venusian got in contact with Morton, and during one visit, Morton had asked the man to make a mark on a dense steel alloy plate he had come into possession of. The Venusian did so with his thumb, creating a gouge a half an inch deep, apparently. Max decided to see if that was scientifically possible. Max said a full report was given to the FBI, along with an analysis report of the piece of gouged steel. The report, by one of the foremost laboratories in Los Angeles, states that the mark gouged in the steel plate would require pressure of over 1,700 pounds to produce. Further, that such pressure exerted by any known force would shatter that particular type of metal before making it. Even more startling, the analysis of the identification revealed the presence of over a dozen elements not present in the rest of the metal. Vest also visited the Angelucci family and got their version of events. 
Mrs. Angelucci had encountered Bill before. Bill was also keeping a close eye on other contactees as well. Mrs. Angelucci spoke up quickly and said, Oh, that man gave me the creeps. He rang the doorbell one day and introduced himself with an odd name I, I can't remember. He seemed to know everything about us. It frightened me. There was something so strange and downright weird about him. In the last several months, I've met and talked with others whose names and addresses Bill gave me. Several of those had met him only briefly. Others didn't even know who he was and were startled to learn the data he had given me about them in connection with the saucers. Bill also recommends that Vest seek out and read a book called A Dweller on Two Planets. Okay, footnote within a footnote. A Dweller on Two Planets was a book published in 1905 and written by Frederick Spencer Oliver, but attributed to a fellow named Philos the Tibetan. Philos lived in ancient Atlantis and incarnated over and over again throughout time, finally arriving in the late 19th century to inhabit the body of Oliver and dictate the story through automatic writing back in the 1890s. The book is one of the prime sources for the New Age ideas, such as Mount Shasta being some sort of spiritual focal point, and uh, Shock of All Shocks features a trip to Venus. It greatly influenced a variety of thinkers and groups such as Guy Ballard's I Am outfit, Elizabeth Clare Prophet, and others, and we'll definitely be doing an episode on it at some point. The article concludes with this wonderful little bit. Listen to this list of names. In addition to Orfeo Angelucci, he mentioned in particular the work of George Van Tassel, Mead Lane, Donald Kehoe, William Pelly, Ray Palmer, Max Miller, Desmond Leslie, and Criswell. A few others, he stated, had been carried away by their own burning enthusiasm and had literally made mountains out of a molehill. Nevertheless, in the overall picture, their work, too, would prove generally helpful. I really got a kick out of the fact that uh, George Adamski and George Hunt Williamson were not on the list. Adamski's initial co-author Desmond Leslie does make the list, as does William Pelley. Now, no. Nope, we don't have time. We will cover Pelley in another episode. Now, that bit about the metal got Palmer in a bit of hot water with the FBI when a reader from Mystic submitted this letter to J. Edgar Hoover. Mr. E. Hoover, FBI, Washington, D.C. Dear Sir, in the August 1954 issue of Mystic Magazine, there was a very fantastic story by Paul M. Vest entitled Venusians Walk Our Streets, published as a true story. The author claims that the FBI had, quote, a heavy plate of the hardest alloyed steel, end quote, which a man from space marked with a half-inch deep streak by simply and without effort passing his fingernail over it. A report from a, quote, foremost laboratory, end quote, in Los Angeles states, quote, that the gouged mark in the steel plate would require pressure of over 1,700 pounds to produce, and that analysis revealed the presence of over a dozen elements not present in the rest of the metal. All I want to know is, did the FBI receive such a plate? And, of course, anything else that can be revealed at this time. Sincerely, Hoover replied, your letter of June 30, 1954 has been received, and the thought prompting your writing me is appreciated. For your information, the FBI has never received a steel plate such as the one to which you make reference. Sincerely yours, John Edgar Hoover, Director. But that wasn't the end of it. 
Attention, Special Agent in Charge. You are instructed to have an agent contact Editor Palmer in the very near future and advise him that we have no record of information such as he described being submitted to the Bureau and that we do not appreciate having the name of the Bureau used in fantastic stories appearing in his publication to add credence to his stories and articles. Advise the Bureau of the results of your contact no later than July 19, 1954. An agent did get a hold of Palmer and filed this report on July 8, 1954. Raymond Palmer, owner and editor of Mystic Magazine, was contacted on July 19, 1954, relative to the article appearing in the August 1954 issue of Mystic Magazine entitled Venusians Walk Our Streets. He stated that this article was written by Paul M. Vest, noting that Mr. Vest is a writer for various magazines. Palmer stated that a reference to the FBI in the above-mentioned article was not, quote, caught by him at the time he edited the article. Palmer was advised that no such report ever reached the FBI. Palmer apologized for having included this reference to the FBI in Vest's article and voluntarily stated that in the next issue of Mystic Magazine, he would inform his readers that the FBI never received any such report as mentioned in the above article. Palmer stated that he desired to, quote, keep the record straight, end quote, inasmuch as subscribers to Mystic Magazine may contact the Bureau to ascertain the veracity of Vest's article. Mr. Palmer indicated that he was very skeptical of Vest's article. During the course of the interview, Mr. Palmer advised that he receives approximately 50 letters per week concerning flying saucers and pointed out that he takes those letters which appear to be the most feasible and furnishes the information to the Central Intelligence Agency, noting that he has been advised that they are interested in flying saucer reports. One last thing about the Paul Vest, Bill the Venusian angle of the Angelucci story. A few years ago, a Scandinavian researcher named Hakan Blomquist wrote a story with a theory he had that the contactee movement might have been the creation of, in his words, an ancient esoteric society. And he wonders whether Paul Vest, about whom he found no biographical data, might have been part of this effort and uses this story from Mystic as a basis for that speculation, as well as Vest's mention of a dweller on two planets which certainly cements his esoteric and spiritualist interests. A link to the article is in the show notes. Oh, okay. Thank you for hanging in there. We're getting back to Orpheo's story in a second, but first, just want to remind you that you can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show with your love offerings at saucerlife.com. Next time, Encounter 61, it's our second anniversary. And there's all kinds of stuff. It's, it's sort of a Saucer Life uh, variety show. We've got a, a little bit of an example of what a parallel universe version of this show might sound like. We've got an update on something I said I would update you on about a year ago. And um, some other fun stuff that I'm sure I will come up with. As always, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to the show anywhere you find podcasts. Now, let's get back to Orfeo. So, in 1955, Angelucci's first book, The Secret of the Saucers, arrived on the scene, edited by Ray Palmer and published by Palmer's own Amherst Press Publishing House. Basically, the book combines material from the three articles that had appeared in Mystic and blends them with the narrative Angelucci had produced in the 20th Century News version of the story. One thing that is much expanded upon in the book is Angelucci's early life as he discusses his health issues. 
leaving school in grade 9, teaching himself science and things like that. He marries, has a son, everything is great. Then he suffered another physical breakdown, and he recovered after a long hospital stay. Now, Jim Mosley, in his shockingly close-to-the-truth memoir, mentions that Angelucci had undergone psychiatric treatment but provides no details, and I wonder if this hospital stay in the mid-40s could have had some psychiatric element. Angelucci's telling of it is focused strictly on physical ailments, but if anyone out there has more solid leads than this about his psychiatric treatment or supposed psychiatric treatment, drop me a line via the usual means. Also, in the foreword to Secret of the Saucers, we get a bit of an expansion on this bit from the 20th century news. You are balloons in New Jersey, beloved friend. Yes, I, I saw your plane go with them. In August 1946, Angelucci attempted to do an experiment where he sent a mold sample into the upper atmosphere using balloons, 18 Navy-type balloons to be specific. The tether on the balloon broke and his experiment was ruined. However, everyone who was with him at the launch saw a strange aircraft following the balloons, and in Secret of the Saucers, he explains the significance of the event. Since then, I have learned that the occasion of the launching of the balloons was the first time I came under direct observation of the extraterrestrials. Although I never then dreamed of the significance of the event, that was their first contact with me. He then moves into the telling of his initial May 1952 encounter. It's very much the same as that told in Mystic, although the mysterious voice reminds him of the balloon experiment, but provides additional detail about it as well. We also get the delicious beverage on the fender back, something that was left out of the mystic account. There's also some expansion on the Venusians' plans for contacting the people of Earth. His second encounter, the trip in the igloo saucer, is very much as in the previous two accounts. However, when Orfeo asks for improved physical health if he's to carry out his work as a messenger for the space people, his request is turned down. That we cannot grant you, Orfeo, as much as we might like to. It is only because your physical body is weakened and your spiritual perceptions thereby keener that we have been able to contact you. Had you been physically in robust health with your mortal body and mind perfectly attuned to the sluggish, lowered vibrations of Earth, we could not have manifested to you. So here we have an explanation as to why the almighty aliens can't or don't heal Angelucci, and it's flattering to him. Without his physical weaknesses, they would have been unable to contact him. The pain and suffering he's gone through his whole life were the catalyst for the amazing experiences he had now. And this is pure speculation, but I wonder if editor Ray Palmer, who had significant physical pain and issues of his own through his entire life, I wonder if this was a Ray Palmer edition, because it doesn't appear in the initial account in, uh, in, in 20th Century News, it doesn't appear in Mystic, but it appears here, because there's more room to expand on things in a book as opposed to a, a newsstand magazine, but I wonder if you know, seeing some parallels between his own physical challenges and the ones Angelucci claimed to have, I wonder if, if this is something Palmer slipped in. And it's in this section of the book, the Igloo Saucer episode, that we also get a glimpse at Angelucci's attempt to reconcile his religious beliefs with the reality of the saucer people. We know your mind is filled with questions. One question in particular troubles you, and it concerns the entity the world knows as Jesus Christ. May we set your mind at rest. 
In allegorical language, Christ is indeed the Son of God. The star that burned over Bethlehem is a cosmic fact. It announced the birth on your planet of an entity not of Earth's evolution. He is Lord of the Flame, an infinite entity of the Sun. Out of compassion for mankind's suffering, he became flesh and blood and entered the hell of ignorance, woe, and evil. As the Sun Spirit who sacrificed himself for the children of woe, he has become a part of the oversoul of mankind and the world spirit. In this, he differs from all other world teachers. So it seems from this that Christianity, or at least the form of it described here, is a bit more in a privileged position than in other contact tales. Jesus having a higher position than other world teachers is uh, an interesting touch. The baptism scene is much as it was before, but with the added touch of Angelucci receiving a kind of brand on his chest as a result. The outer rim of the circle was red, inflamed, and slightly raised, as also was a small dot in the center of the circle, the symbol of the hydrogen atom. I realized they had impressed that mark upon my body to convince me beyond all doubt of the reality of my experiences in the cold light of the coming days. Next, Angelucci meets Neptune, who visits him in L.A. and talks of various pseudoscience-themed things, the differences in dimension between Earth and other planets, that sort of thing. As a result, Earth, he says, is, is not only in the cosmic kindergarten. Indeed, Neptune and his pals place Earth on an even lower plane than kindergarten. Um, even lower than preschool, perhaps. Earth is a three-dimensional world, and because of this, it is preponderantly false. I may tell you that to the entities of certain other worlds, Earth is regarded as the accursed planet, the home of the reprobate fallen ones. Others call your Earth the home of sorrows, for Earth's evolution is evolution through pain, sorrow, sin, suffering, and the illusion of physical death. Believe me, all evolutions are not similar to Earth's, despite the present beliefs of your scientists. Neptune goes on to explain that long ago there was another planet in the solar system, the original home of Earth people. They rebelled against the great giver of life and destroyed their world, creating the asteroid belt. The people of that world were reborn on Earth, our ancestors. Suffering, sorrow, frustration, and death became their teacher. Their symbol became the man-beast. It wouldn't be a contact ebook without some discussion of current affairs and geopolitics. Angelucci does not disappoint, um, asking Neptune about the dangers lurking on Earth, such as the H-bomb and, quote, the creeping menace of communism that is threatening the world. Neptune's response to Angelucci's concerns is interesting. Communism, Earth's present fundamental enemy, masks beneath its banner the spearhead of the united forces of evil. Along with good, all men have evil in their hearts to a degree, but some are much more evil than others. Communism is a necessary evil and now exists upon Earth, as do venomous creatures, famines, blights, tyrannies, cataclysms. All are negative forces which awaken the positive forces of good in men and cause them to act. Thus they are combated, understood, and ultimately their unreality becomes apparent for evil is always, eventually, self-destroyed. Well, I think it's interesting. Communism is evil, but a necessary one. Here, I think there's a concerted attempt to portray Neptune as providing an actual alien percep 
uh, perceptive perspective. Communism as almost a natural phenomenon, a necessary phase. Now, Neptune also describes a coming calamity that, quote, future history will call the great accident. Following that, mankind will enter a new age. Communism, or the fundamental evil it represents, is part of that process. It's all very akin to the dispensationalist interpretation of biblical prophecy, where there are detailed breakdowns of future stages of human history, and of course, attempts to shoehorn whatever headlines you happen to see into that breakdown. Neptune tells Angelucci that by meeting with him, he has broken the non-interference rules of his people, but is confident that Angelucci will prove worthy of the knowledge he's been given. The next few chapters of the book detail Angelucci's attempts to get his story out to the people, despite his wife's warnings about the mockery they will all face. He talks about publishing the sole issue of 20th Century Times and becoming acquainted with Max Miller. Neptune even makes an appearance, briefly, to demonstrate that despite the dimensional differences between our people, there are Venusians walking the streets of Los Angeles. That's sort of a tie-in to the Paul Vest story there. Ray Palmer had a way of making all these connections come together, and I'm really surprised that Richard Shaver and the Duros don't show up at some point. Angelucci also talks about the saucer convention that Max Miller organized, attributing the success of the venture to the influence of the space visitors. He does, however, bemoan some of the news coverage the convention received. Some of the larger Los Angeles newspapers covered the convention, but all news stories were of the usual tongue-in-cheek type. A few of the smaller, more rabid papers tried to expose it as nothing more than a promotional money-making scheme. Already in 1953, UFO might just as well stand for unprecedented financial opportunity. We transition back to space stuff with Angelucci discussing an episode of what we might call Missing Time back in January of 1953 before he published his 20th Century Times newspaper. During the first half of the year, he had other strange experiences as well. Vivid dreams of a hauntingly beautiful, half-familiar world troubled my sleep. Sometimes I would awaken trembling and bathed in perspiration, feeling that I was close to conscious remembrance of an exquisitely beautiful experience that would explain many things. Also, frequently during the days, fleeting, tenuous memories drifted into the borderland of my consciousness. Even more perplexing were those occasions when, while speaking to groups of persons at the Hollywood Hotel, I felt as though I were being somehow overshadowed by another greater personality, who thought neither in my familiar English or Italian, but in a strange language which it seemed I once knew, but now could no longer remember. As we saw with Howard Menger, the notion of past lives on other worlds is not unheard of in contactee lore, and it appears that that's the direction Angelucci is headed. Later, he'll have a breakthrough in which he recalled his old life, and this would occur during the seven days of, of we can call it, missing time in January of 1953. I remember this world. I remember it in the same way that a condemned prisoner remembers the sunshine, the trees, the flowers of the outside world after an eternity chained in a dark and odious prison. This is my real world, my true body. I've been lost in a dimension called time, and a captive in a forbidding land called Earth, but now, somehow, I have come home. All is serenity, peace, harmony, and indescribable beauty. The only disturbing factor is a troublesome half-memory of an unhappy shadow named Orfeo, a bondsman in a prison world of materiality called Earth. Here, he meets, or re-meets, a woman named Lyra, who is, of course, startlingly beautiful. 
Lyra, you'll recall, was mentioned in the 20th century news account of Angelucci's first visit with the space people. Oddly, and this is one of those things that's a turning point in the story, she refers to him as Neptune. Yeah, the alien that Angelucci had previously encountered. Another being, Orion, joins the party. And Angelucci recognizes him, and upon being called Neptune again, protests that he is not Neptune. Orion tries to explain. But I am not Neptune. There is some mistake. Are you certain? You will recall that Neptune was the name you gave to our brother who first contacted you upon Earth. That name has always held a strange, deep significance for you. Perhaps because it was once your own name. But the other Neptune? Who is he? With us, names are of little significance. The brother of whom you speak was in the illusion of the past known as Astra, but in the higher octaves of light, individualized aspects, such as you know upon Earth, are non-existent. Even now, as we manifest in this most tenuous of material states of being, you are not aware of us in our true, eternal aspect. We are, you might say in terms of Earth, staging a dress-show reception for you, our lost brother. Before the destruction, our existence was much as you see it now. That is why you seem to remember all of this. In that phase of the time dimension, you were known as Neptune. Something was wrong. Terribly wrong. Yes, you're right, Orfeo. The rapidly expanding and incredibly confusing cast of characters is one of the things that's gone wrong. Regardless, he eats and drinks. Especially drinks, a, a, a sparkling liquid poured into a lavender crystal goblet, which caused him to feel, quote, renewed vitality and strength, as well as, quote, a dreamy languor of mind. Orion, Lyra, and Angelucci slash Neptune then visit a planet. Angelucci has recollections of it, and his hosts explain that this is the lost planet Lucifer, home to those who rebelled against the etheric beings, and the father, or source. It turns out that Angelucci himself is the descendant, reincarnated, whatever. He, whatever. He's one of the, the fallen people. He's one of the rebels. Uh, not everybody on Lucifer was, but he was one of the rebels and, and he reincarnated on Earth. And he's racked with guilt about his past. And, and then a sudden thought concerns him. And without speaking it, his companions know what's troubling him. Suddenly, a terrible thought came to me, almost causing me to collapse in horror as I recoiled from it. Stark terror was in my eyes as I looked first at Lyra and then at Orion. I dared not voice what was in my mind. Orion, discerning my thought, shook his head, and his wonderful eyes radiated sympathy and understanding as he said, No, Neptune, have no fear. You are not, in reality, Lucifer. Who, who hasn't been there, talking with friends and suddenly worried that you might be Lucifer? Of course, it turns out that Lucifer has incarnated several times on Earth and is here now, Orion explains, but he can't say who it is. But we'd recognize the name. That detail, too, is um, one of the things that contributes to these overtones of dispensationalist Bible interpretation, with its emphasis on determining the identity of the Antichrist. So Angelucci returns to his earthly life with some answers, at least. The consciousness that overshadowed him as he spoke makes more sense to him now. 
a few months later, back in the present of the book, Angelucci talks a bit more about his UFO presentations and increasing presence in the field. He also describes a December 1954 meeting once again with Neptune, who's really Astra since Angelucci is Neptune, but only in space, not on Earth. Neptune explains that Angelucci is now a dweller in two worlds, a Palmerian callback to Paul Vest's article mentioning a dweller on two planets. As Orfeo's story closes, he meets with Lyra and Orion once again, and is assured of their continued presence in his life. So Angelucci, Angelucci, Angelucci remains popular, and in 1959, we get Son of the Sun, a book that annoyingly has the same initials as Secret of the Saucers, making my note-taking a confusing nightmare. And it's published by Divorce, a company that still exists today, publishing what it calls mind-body-spirit books. We don't see a credit for Ray Palmer as editor on this one, although he gets a shout-out in the acknowledgments. Son of the Sun is an odd book because it largely concerns Orfeo's discussions with Adam. Adam appears on the first page in, uh, in medias race, if you will, saying, In the final analysis, Orfeo, there's only one virtue, the love of pure learning. Angelucci explains that he and Adam have talked of many things, mostly philosophical and spiritual ideas like, quote, the very core of effects, causes, aberrations, connections, into the cause behind all causes end quote, and the like. Adam had knowledge. Knowledge from elsewhere. Sitting in the little desert restaurant in the heart of 29 Palms, Adam told me he had read my book, The Secret of the Saucers, but that he had never expected to meet me in person. And as for me, I certainly never expected to meet one like Adam, for he had recently gone into the sun and out again. He did not flinch when he told me this. Indeed, there was a mystical look on his face which as much as said that his trip into the sun was not quite his top experience, that other events more extraordinary had recently occurred, and I believe each one on earth is destined in time to have similar experiences. That's not a metaphor. Adam is going to go literally into the sun and suffer no ill effects, quote, other than normal... <laughs> Other than normal perspiring. It's it's July. I break into a sweat of normal perspiring when I see somebody wearing a long sleeve shirt. I, I cannot imagine going into the sun. So if you're wondering what's going on here, you're you're not alone. So is the reader, because all of this starts up kind of in the middle of things, or in medias race, as I said earlier, as I learned in high school. Luckily, Orpheus got our back and he's he starts to explain how he moved to 29 Palms, California, and he made a new friend named Earl Brewer. Earl and Orfeo frequented Tiny's Diner in 29 Palms, and one day, when Earl was out of town, Orfeo stopped there on his own. Earl's point in this story, as far as I could tell, pretty much ends there. It was confusing. So, Orfeo stopped on his own at Tiny's Diner when Earl was out of town one day, and there at a table was Adam. That was the name he gave anyway. Adam explained that he had seven months to live. They order dinner, steaks, if you're wondering, and Adam asks Orfeo if he wants a beer. Orfeo then notices Adam's drink. I looked at the pitcher of water. His own glass contained a sparkling liquid the color of pale ginger ale, fizzing and bubbling continuously, though he had already drunk half of it. The lively bubbles arose from the remains of a tiny tablet at the bottom of the glass. My answer to his offer was a hurried, no, no, Adam, no beer for me. 
I'll take the water. And I poured some from the pitcher into my glass. Adam smiled even more broadly as his hand went into his coat pocket. He brought out an oyster-white pellet and held it before me as he remarked, Okay, Orfeo, then how about a very rare champagne? Returning his reassuring smile with my own, I took the pellet and dropped it into my glass. Immediately the water bubbled, turning slowly into the clear, pale amber contained in his own glass. I lifted the glass a few inches from the table, looking into it with a feeling that this might be the drink I dared not hope for. The exhilarating aroma rising from it could not be mistaken. I had tasted and smelled the same liquid before. I put my lips to the glass and merely let the liquid touch my lips. That was enough. Adam, Adam, I can't believe it. Please don't fool me. My sudden excitement had taken me from earth number one to earth number two. I could feel my whole being swirling into another domain from the mere recognition of the nectar. I could not control my spiral ascent, nor did I want to. Adam's eyes had continued smiling into my own. It all seems very romantic, but anyway, yeah, it's the nectar that Angelucci had imbibed with the space people, now in convenient tablet form. Angelucci goes into a bit of detail about how the nectar affected him. I thrilled from head to foot as I took the glass, lifted it to my lips, and swallowed twice from it. At that instant, I entered with Adam into a more exalted state, and everything around me took on a different semblance. No longer was I in Tiny's Cafe in 29 Palms. It had been transformed into a cozy retreat on some radiant star system. Though everything remained in its same position, added beauty and meaning were given to the things and people present there. Among the patrons dining that evening were two marines from the nearby base. They were sitting at the front end of the counter. Sometimes they glanced our way as they talked and drank beer following their meal. There was a trace of disdain in their expressions, especially in the younger ones. This was not directed at us, but rather was part of their general outlook, colored by a grueling military life. Yet now, since taking a little of the nectar, I saw them as two vibrant humans in the pageantry of life. Not only my life, but all life. If they could see themselves in the same broad scope, their lives would not seem to them so desolate or remote. This certainly seems to be more of a, a transformative beverage than we saw in the previous book, and we're, we're going to see the nectar's importance played up throughout Son of the Sun. Adam launches into his story. He's a doctor, was diagnosed with cancer, and began exploring esoteric topics such as flying saucers, which led him to Angelucci's book. In a tedious sequence, the first of many, they establish that they have similar views of reality and the presence of the nectar pellets tells Angelucci that Adam is one of the good guys, affiliated with the space people. As the second chapter opens, the pair are finishing their dinner and a strange episode occurs, one which would be one of the iconic Angelucci images. I too looked again at the glass and was held in amazement. A miniature young woman was dancing in the nectar. Her golden blonde beauty was as arresting as the miracle of her projection in the glass. Her arms moved in rhythmic motion with the graceful thrusts of her dancing body. Her feet were so light and responsive that the music itself seemed to emanate from them. The expression on her face was that of a maid who had found bliss and eternity among the angels. I, I had not seen her eyes, for they had not once shifted their gaze from Adam's eyes. All the while she danced. Why, I thought, would she not cast 
just a passing glance my way? No, Orfeo. The dancing girl's thrusts are only for Adam. The description of this goes on for pages, ending with Adam and Orfeo finishing off their nectar. They leave the restaurant, and Adam hands Angelucci some money, and they discuss Angelucci writing Adam's story, which we're getting to. Honest, they just need to walk to the shack Adam is renting first. This is all taking forever. Meandering philosophical conversations abound, and it's at this point, about a third of the way into The Son of the Sun, that you really start to wish Ray Palmer had edited this book too, because a lot of this could be cut. Eventually, we learn that Adam took a trip with a beautiful woman named Vega in a spaceship, where she explains that the Earth will either, quote, devolve back to destruction or evolve unto heaven, end quote, a slightly different future than Angelucci conveyed in Secret of the Saucers. When Adam questions the safety of the ship, Vega tells him that her beloved superiors ensured that it was safe. They fly on, with Adam marveling at the sights of space. There is a painful interlude where Adam explains that he never got around to finding a woman on Earth, but he's pretty sure he's in love with Vega, and she pretty much laughs it off as an adolescent crush. He asks her about the speed of light, and Vega tells him he will soon learn the truth. The truth ends up being that traveling faster than light is impossible for physical objects, but ethereal objects can do so because they obey different laws. I think it was confusing. I really want Ray Palmer to come back from the dead and edit this. So Adam and Vega are talking, and Adam brings up these superiors that Vega had mentioned. He's concerned that it sounds kind of undemocratic that there are these superiors who have special knowledge and boss people around. Vega explains that they're not really superiors, but peers. But they're peers with additional responsibilities. This is possible because on their planet which she says orbits Alpha Centauri, they've evolved past issues like social status. Peers may even marry those who are below them, but they don't, because, quote, a peer could not elevate the backward one by that gesture. In fact, he would at once descend and join the society of the backward ones, end quote. Well, that sounds as egalitarian as all get out, man. That's, um, that's something. Something else that's something is how... Adam responds to Vega's explanation. Uh, she gets through the part about, you know, how they're superior, but really peers, but they don't marry down because that would drag them down into the mud. Adam adds this because he is now just, he's all in on Vega. For the first time, Vega looked at Adam the way he had first longed to see her look at him. Her eyes assumed a soft pensiveness and her voice mellowed into a romantic subtleness. Cosmic womanhood whispered its echoes in her every aspect, and her beauty reached the zenith of what to an Earthman would be the limit of his capacity to absorb in a state of sanity. Whoa. Settle down. Uh, settle down, Adam. You're, you're getting a little out of hand. But, but romance-wise, things are getting complicated. Adam loves Vega, but Vega knows Adam is destined to be with someone else named Lonnie. Adam then feels guilty about abandoning Vega, who doesn't love him, for Lonnie, who he hasn't met yet. So they zip past Venus, land on Andromeda, a massive ship with a self-enclosed world that is ten miles in diameter and houses half a million people. I'm not sure of the math on that, but, um, sure, fine. Vega says goodbye to Adam when they get there and tells him he will meet others, such as Lyra, Orion, and Neptune. 
He attends a gathering held in his honor, and there's some weird stuff going on here. The young lady on the platform then directed, Let us now sing for Adam. Introduction music played a short time, then, like a heavenly choir, they sang Stephen Foster's Beautiful Dreamer. Such an arrangement as Adam heard that day has not yet been captured on earth. He looked at the young lady who was still standing on the platform, and she returned his glance through moistened eyes. Adam did not know whether to thank Stephen Foster or these people. Whatever pertained to Adam in the most minute detail, past, present, or future, was a completely open book to this woman whose glance met his in complete understanding. What passed between them in this brief moment, even Lonnie would be incapable of erasing. Yes, even Lonnie. Okay, no snark. No snark. Okay. Stephen Foster? That's just weird. Although the title, Beautiful Dreamer, I mean, it, thematically it fits. And Adam is building up a whole lot of expectation for Lonnie to just be amazing in every possible way. So the girl from the platform and a man guide Adam around Andromeda, leading him to a cottage where he may stay, and they leave a new guide with him, a young woman he names Lily. Yes, he gives her a name because they don't have names, so he just imposes a name on this woman. But Lily, delectable, lovable Lily, was delicious to his inner vaults of feeling. He remembered suddenly that he was here alone in the doorway, lost in a kind of limbo. He nearly ran into the kitchen so he could feast his eyes on Lily, who was cosmic livingness itself, she was preparing two glasses of refreshing beverage, water, and pellets, those never-ending pellets. She offered him one of the glasses with its liquid, bubbling amber. She took the other, and they drank thirstily, Adam rising under its effect and Lily descending. As they put their glasses down, they looked into each other's eyes with a deeper understanding than before. Lily saw in Adam the small essence of Leo, and Adam saw in Lily... Only the promise of Lonnie. One thing was certain now, and that was that Adam was no longer tired or sleepy, but wide awake and expectant. No, not anticipating Lonnie, for he must first understand and fathom Lily. He had learned the ways of these people, and he must master each phase of his learning before progressing to the next. Thus ran his thoughts. Having drunk the nectar... And now meeting on an equal plane, Adam felt his masculine strength assert itself. What? I, okay, this was just a nice little flying saucer podcast ten minutes ago, and, and now it's turned into some kind of erotic... You know, he, Adam's ascending, Lily's descending, he's popping pills, he needs to experience her before he moves on to the next woman. Th this is weird. So... What happens next? He and Lily talk for several chapters about very, very boring, repetitive, philosophical things. And eventually, Lyra and Orion and Neptune and Saturn, the leader of Andromeda, arrive and we find something out that will rock you to your very foundations. Lily is really Lonnie. I know, it's shocking. The group talk together into the evening, and this phase of Adam's story ends with the news that his visit to Andromeda cured his cancer. 
He takes the story back up at Tiny's Cafe the next evening, and the story includes a line from Lonnie that made me just roar with laughter for some reason when I first read it. Now good night, you handsome, untamed earth man. Let's all make a pact, a saucer pact, to slip that line into conversation at least once in the next couple of weeks. Lonnie and Adam meet with Antares next, the director of research, and then meet Mercury, a physicist. In a chapter entitled, The Nature of Infinite Entities, yes, like Angelucci's essay he wrote back in the day, Mercury uses ginger ale to demonstrate the basis of reality. All the secrets of the infinite entities we learn are there within the ginger ale, in the bubbles, in the effervescence, in the way things interact. We learn that Angelucci's ideas are what brought him to the attention of the space people, and they show Adam Secret of the Saucers, a book that has not yet been published on Earth. Then, Lonnie and Adam go on a date to the Café Venus. They were escorted to a table, and as soon as they were seated, one wall became a three-dimensional television screen. Sailing ships on a realistic sea were shown, and Columbus's landing on the eastern shores of the Atlantic, an actual picture 450 years old, was viewed. The voices of Columbus and his men plainly heard. Then the Mayflower giving its passengers to America, as well as many other outstanding events of Earth's history were shown, all of them actual recordings. After dinner, there was an hour's stage show. Adam knew it would be many centuries before anything like this could be reproduced on Earth. Had he not taken the nectar, it would have been too much for him to see and hear. Included were a few of the best compositions of Earth, arranged in the incredibly beautiful orchestrations of the Alpha Centaurians. That sounds like a great time. And Adam's working his way through a lot of nectar on this trip, and trip may be a good word for it. The remainder of the book involves more convoluted philosophical conversations and culminates in Adam ditching Lonnie for another woman named Oliva. Together they go into the sun and out again, and along the way she shortens her name to Eve. Yeah, Adam and Eve. At the end of the book, Adam convinces Angelucci to write his story because only an amateur like Orfeo could do Adam's story justice. Adam takes off with yet another space woman, this one named Dora, and the book concludes with these lines. Indeed, one person alone, with the true vision, could redeem a whole world through only the vision and a few seconds merged together. Because Adam was, the earth shall be. That is, it shall become what it can be, as the attained ones of another world watch and wait. No. I don't know what it means either. So, being positive, this book is a rambling, convoluted bore in a lot of places. It needlessly creates another contactee. It introduces so many characters and so many variable names for the same characters that it's really difficult to follow. The philosophical sections are repetitious and dense, and they, they were in Secret of the Saucers, but these were not as good. I don't know the sales numbers of Son of the Sun, but I will say that Angelucci never wrote another book. But while Angelucci, like many contactees, faded into obscurity as the years wore on, his popularity, or at least name recognition, has remained intact. One major reason for that is that Angelucci's story was one of the aspects of the flying saucer mythos discussed by Carl Jung in his 1959 book, Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Skies. He delves into the mythological nature of some aspects of his story, 
and does some interesting speculation on his very name. Orpheo, not Neptune. Orpheo's fantasies are played out in an obviously heavenly place, and his cosmic friends bear the names of stars. If they are not antique gods and heroes, they are at least angels. The author certainly lives up to his name, for just as his wife is, in his opinion, a descendant of the Borgias of unhappy memory, so he, an earthly copy of the angels, and a messenger bringing Eleusinian tidings of immortality, must style himself a new Orpheus, divinely appointed to initiate us into the mystery of the UFO. Not even the Orphean strains are lacking. If the name is a deliberately chosen pseudonym, we can only say Bentravato, but if it appears in his birth certificate, then the matter becomes more problematical. Today, we can no longer suppose that a magical compulsion attaches to a mere name, else we should have to attribute a correspondingly sinister significance to his spouse, much as we would like to credit him with an intellectually rather limited, naive good faith, it might be suspected that a fine Italian hand is at work. What appears impossible from the conscious standpoint can often be arranged by the unconscious with all the craftiness of nature. Be that as it may, Orpheo's book is an essentially naive production, which for that very reason reveals all the more clearly the unconscious background of the UFO phenomenon, and therefore comes like a gift to the psychologist. The individuation process, the central problem of modern psychology, is plainly depicted in it as an unconscious, symbolical form, which bears out our previous reflections, although the author, with a somewhat primitive mentality, has taken it quite literally as a concrete happening. Less highbrow is the high regard in which radio personality Long John Nebel held Angelucci. Following the end of this episode, there's a, a few minutes of Nebel talking about Angelucci and then Angelucci himself talking about uh, some a, a version of some of the stories you've heard previously. Now, Angelucci's contact stories are significant, I believe, for a number of reasons. One reason is the quality of the writing. Even in the bits that were not edited by Palmer, there's an energy and an imagination often missing from similar accounts. Little touches like the mysterious drink with, perhaps, pharmacological overtones, the woman dancing in the liquid, the small saucers projecting images in the sky, and um, a lot of it. Those are just a few examples. It's also a story where we see the development of a narrative over time, from the 20th century news version to Mystic Magazine to Secret of the Saucers. And I think it's interesting that the fundamentals really don't change. There's a consistency to it, and reading through all of it, which you can do mostly with what's available online, you can appreciate Orpheo's storytelling, but also the touches that Palmer and Vest were able to contribute. Orfeo left the UFO circuit in the 60s and died in 1993, but has roused considerable attention through today. The strange nature of his contacts, including the presence of those seemingly hallucinogenic liquids and his employment in the defense industry, has led some to wonder if his experiences were engineered for nefarious purposes. Mark Pilkington of the Mirage Men documentary and Nick Redfern of roughly 73 billion books have both discussed this possibility. I have to admit that I have a soft spot for these kinds of explanations of contactee encounters, because at least it's something more than the time-worn, it's just a hoax thing. While it robs the contactee of some of his or her agency, I think stories like that of Angelucci and, and Menger have a theme that those of us imprisoned on Earth, descended from the rebels of Lucifer, 
don't actually have a lot of agency. Our free will is constrained by the three-dimensional world in which we live. Our only escape, maybe, is to find a saucer life of our own. In the show notes at saucerlife.com, you'll find a whole lot of links to some of the books we mentioned in this episode and a link to the Long John Nebel video where I found the Angelucci audio that's going to be at the end of the episode, as well as links to other materials here, or mentioned here, and used here. The clip of uh, Beautiful Dreamer is by the National Taiwan University Chorus and is the closest thing I could find to what Adam might have heard. Special appreciation this time goes out to the Black Vault, which has always filled our J. Edgar Hoover-related needs, the Internet Archive, and the Archives for the Unexplained for having so many old magazines, including Mystic, and Mark Russell Bell, whose transcription of the 20th Century News made it possible for this episode to be even more thorough and detailed than it might otherwise have been. There's also links to the stories by Pilkington and Redfern about Angelucci that you can look at. The Saucer Life, Encounter 60, featured Nelson Sinat and Roberta Evangeline Straith and is a production of Media. Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because you're about to hear Orfeo Angelucci. It's possible that the most completely amazing and exciting flying saucer tales are told by the charming Orfeo Angelucci. Mr. Angelucci claimed that his original sighting was even before the Kenneth Arnold affair. It took place back in 1946. But his first contact didn't happen until 1952. However, as unbelievable as all that was, nothing compares for pure wildness with this story of Orfeo Angelucci. I entered the door, and at the table nearest the door was a very, very handsome man. And as I approached, he says, Greetings, Orfeo. Sit down. And I said, You have a third glass here. Is someone with you? He looked at the glass, and he was surprised. He said, I don't know how that happened. I only ordered two glasses. He asked me to order. Then he asked me if I wanted a bottle of beer. I said, no, not tonight. So he says, good. He lifted the pitcher of water from the table and poured it into my glass. Then he went into his pocket. And he said, then how about some of the best champagne in the world? He took out a little pellet and dropped it in my glass. And it started to fizzle like his own. So he told me to call him nothing but Adam. He, uh, two months ago, he had discovered he had nine months to live. He had cancer. And it was incurable. Anyhow, he says, eat up. Let's dine and just get acquainted for the time being. I noticed that his glass was filling itself with water. But no one had poured it in there. So we went off for a while. And as the dessert approached, I heard music coming from the glass. It was subdued music. He said, wait a minute. On this picture here, the water was up to this black spot. Now it's down here. He said, but the pellet, he went into his pocket and he says, wait, I'm supposed to have four. He took out the pellets and only three. He said, what they were doing was sublimating the water or evaporating it from the pitcher into the glass by remote control and sublimated the pellet in his pocket 
over into the glass so that no one ever actually saw the process. Of course, I know now that he had had either experience with space visitors or that he himself was one. And then I looked up at him and I noticed that he was looking now intently into the glass. He had a little smile on his face, yet tears were streaming down his eyes, landing right on the table before him. I thought, God, what, what is it that he is going on? I looked at the glass, and now there was the, well, the figure of a girl dancing in it with blonde hair, a little miniature woman just dancing to the music, and the music itself became more spirited as she danced. I never saw such dancing before. Immediately I thought, well, Adam is either recalling someone or he's had an experience out of this world, literally out of this world, when she disappeared. She never looked at me, she always looked toward him. But in the finale, when the music ended with a crash, she suddenly whirled and 